listening to Canary Cry Radio. They found a few things with very subtle effects that the theory of interaction of light with electricity should explain. And then they measured them and they found these effects, but they couldn't explain, that is the theory didn't explain it quantitatively because when the people made the calculation they got infinity instead of the right result. So this is where things get really strange. How could a dot particle and a spread out wave somehow be connected? When we talk about, say, the motion of a particle like an electron, we describe it in this wave-like manner. It could be at one location or another or another still. But when we actually measure the electron, we find it at one single location. When we find it at one single location, we know where it is. The problem is, this notion of the act of measurement affecting the probability wave in that manner does not agree with the mathematical equation. By 1948, 20 years, we had at last measured something which showed that the original theory was without interaction, is incomplete. This is supposed to be the result of interaction. When you went to calculate it, you got infinity. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Hey everybody and welcome to Canary Cry Radio. My name's Basil. And this is Gons. Welcome to episode number 076. That number just keeps getting higher. It just keeps adding one. (laughs) (laughs) One at a time. Yep. So, we have another returning guest and he is the host of The Sharpening. He has a website called Mini Study Ministry. Yep. And he was our guest back in episode number 52. Yeah. And he's back. Here he is. Josh Peck. Mr. Josh Hey. Hey, guys. How you doing? What's up, man? How you doing? Uh, Doing great. I'm glad to be back on. Thanks for inviting me back. Good. Absolutely. No, you're a great friend of the show, and we're glad to have you back. And just to be completely transparent with everybody, it sounds like we're just now welcoming Josh Peck to the show, but we've actually been like just talking for like... 54 minutes <laughs> just about <laughs> stuff so anyways and some of go. that may end up may or may not end up on uh you know some exclusive audio that right. you can receive if you sign up to our email list right and john before we start talking josh just so everybody knows if you're on our super cool email list then you knew josh was coming you knew already you already know what's going on and you are tuned in. And also, if you want to hear some exclusive audio, you can go ahead and sign up for our email list right there on canarycryradio.com. But, Josh Peck, I'm glad you're back. Thus the prophecy has been fulfilled. I am <laughs> so, so we understand that you are doing this from your bed. Just yes. to, to clear things up. Yeah. 
Well, I figured I figured the uh, the last show I I the last time that I was on with you guys I uh, I did it in a chair, so I thought this time I'd uh, I'd try the bed. Well, next time we're <laughs> gonna just, have to up the ante. Yeah, I'll have to get in the bath or something. We're just gonna become more prostrate, like as the more episodes <laughs> that you're on. Eventually, you're just gonna be hanging upside down in your closet. <laughs> Well, I'll do this. Okay, so you have written another book. Yes, but first I probably should explain the bed thing. (laughs) Oh, yeah. All right. We're not just going to leave that. (laughs) We'll just we'll just leave it and just let the let the listeners' minds wander. (laughs) (laughs) I like the mystery, but I think most people are familiar with why you're in bed. Yeah, I, I I think so too, but I I'm afraid of where uninformed minds will wander if I don't at least mention it. <laughs> okay. Well, All right. So that's the deal, bro. The deal is, uh, a little over a month ago, I had a hip replacement surgery because uh, uh, yeah, I have a I have a rare bone disease and uh, needed a hip replacement. So, so I got that done, and I'm currently in recovery, and it's a, it's actually going really well. A lot of people have been uh, praying for me, and uh, a lot of people have been donating to the ministry to help with all the medical bills, which which are just outrageous. But <laughs> uh, yeah, a lot of people have been praying, and recovery is going amazing. But I'm still uh, I have restrictions. Uh, <laughs> like on my on my new hip for right now till it kind of gets broken in, I guess. <laughs> but um, I can't like I can't bend my hip more than uh more than ninety more than a ninety degree angle, like you know more than ninety degrees. So uh, but I'm six three. Uh, before the surgery, I was six four, but I'm six three now. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the 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 disease had uh it, it caused my right leg to actually grow longer than my left leg so an inch of that has been so i i i was six four before the surgery but i'm six three now but i'm I'm still too tall for all the chairs in my uh in my in my apartment to be able to you know actually sit down without without bending my hip at more than 90 degrees so i've oh been gosh. mostly yeah i've been mostly uh recovering in bed so that that's why i'm uh doing the interview in in bed that's crazy. I, I can't relate to to you on that level because I <laughs> I sit on my couch and my my feet dangle like I'm a <laughs> like I'm a you know little little thing. Um, so the surgery went well. You're doing well. Are you off the the painkillers and everything? Are you still doing that whole spiel? Yeah, I'm almost almost done with that, which will be which will be nice. Right now, it's just a take as needed kind of thing, so I don't really take them very much or really at all. Like I, I just kind of I, I try to tough through it as much as I can. Now it now it's been so late into recovery that there's not really a whole lot of pain anymore, so I haven't really you know needed them as much, which is good. I I actually wanted to do the whole thing without painkillers at all, but <laughs> the doctor told me that that wasn't gonna happen (laughs) so so i i kind of had to had to go back on them for a little while which uh those who are familiar with uh my show or my testimony i i actually years ago used to have a narcotic addiction so i the last thing that i wanted to do was get back on painkillers but um yeah this this time's been completely different just the uh the spirit around it's been been different you know there's not right it's it's like 
you know, before I was abusing it, you know, and again, this was years before I even started writing or anything. So, uh, when I used to abuse painkillers and stuff, it wasn't because I was in pain. It was just because I wanted to get high. <laughs> mm-hmm. But now it, you know, it's just totally medicinal, and the spirit behind behind it is different. Like, um, yeah, like I said, I haven't even been really taking them that much, and I haven't really missed them. So, you know, I'm still thankful, uh, thankful to God that He's cured that uh, that whole that that whole narcotic addiction that. That used to uh, used to wreck up my life, so I, I I was worried about that when they told me I was going to have to get back on, but luckily um, it hasn't been a problem. So <laughs> okay, well, good. God bless you, and I'm you know glad you're clear headed for this ultra intense interview we're going to have. Oh yeah. yes. Well, you wrote a book, another book, Quantum Creation, and we'll get into that in just a moment. But in the email best friend email audio exclusive thing that went out last week basil mentioned the nazis and i was like oh yeah that reminds me josh peck and of course i had to clarify (laughs) i'm like what (laughs) we had to we had to sort of clarify why that's a great association to have (laughs) speaking of nazis But it was because you had just recently released a, a little blurb on the potential prophecy in the book of Esther. And I think I said um, Ruth or something, someone different in the video. Or, yeah, but we have clarified that now. So can you give us a little, you know, a little sure. overview of what you were talking about there? Yeah, absolutely. This actually came from uh, research from my first book, Disclosure, where I get I get more into it in Disclosure. But uh, the whole idea of the blog was just to give the basics of what this hidden prophecy is, and um, you know, it, it it it's absolutely fascinating. So um, for for those uh, who are interested to check out the who don't have the link, it's just uh, joshpeckdisclosure.blogspot.com, or you can go to my website, ministry.com and there's a link there for my blog. But uh, basically, this prophecy. It's actually hidden in the original uh, Hebrew. And um, the passage is... All right, so we read the the Jews. I'm, I'm going to try to go through this briefly because it can can be kind of extensive. But the we, we read about the Jews' victory over over Haman and his ten sons in detail in uh, Esther nine five through fourteen. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna read that whole thing. That, it's a big block of text, but um, <laughs> but uh, basically, we're you know just to paraphrase the whole thing, we're told that the the Jews defeated their enemies, which totaled to five hundred men, uh, and that's in Esther nine five through six. Then the names of Haman's ten sons are listed, and we're told that they were defeated as well, and that's Esther nine uh, seven through ten. Uh, then we're told that the king was informed of the number of those defeated, which is Esther nine eleven. Then the king asked Esther uh, what request she had and promised to grant it to her, uh, which is Esther 9.12. And then lastly, um, and actually quite strangely, uh, Esther requested uh, that, and I will quote this, that tomorrow let Haman's ten sons be hanged upon the gallows, yeah. uh, to which the king made good on his promise by commanding it to be done, and, and so it was, Esther 9. 13, 14. Um, so, okay, that, that word tomorrow, uh, it, it, and I'm not 
good, you know, with pronunciation of Hebrew or anything. But uh, as best as I can, uh, as I can do, I, I, it comes from the Hebrew word mahar. I think that's how it's pronounced, and uh, can mean either tomorrow, you know, like a literal tomorrow, like the next day, or time to come. So Queen Esther might uh, might not have been making the request for the following day, but might have actually been making a prophetic statement. And, you know, basically we have two possibilities. Either Queen Esther wanted to wait until the following day and rehang the corpses of Haman's already ten dead sons Jeez. for some strange reason. <laughs> yeah, it's either that or maybe she might have been prophesying that this same thing would happen again at some point in the future or, you know, time to come. Uh, so for obvious reasons, I lean towards that. But to uh, to support that further... Um, there are actually four Hebrew letters that stand out in the list of names of uh, Haman's ten sons in that passage. And in those, um, in those four Hebrew letters, I, I list it all out in the, I'm not even going to try to pronounce the names here, but I, I, uh, I listed out all the names in the blog, uh, and I do have a video that I made um, about this as well. Uh, uh, YouTube.com backslash Josh Peck Disclosure. Uh, but anyway, um, in these four names, there are uh, four Hebrew letters that, that stand out. Uh, three of the letters are noticeably smaller than the rest of the text, whereas one is larger. So in, in the Hebrew language, each letter of the Hebrew alphabet has a numeric value. And the, you know, the study, you know, I'm sure your listeners are well aware of that, the study and calculation of uh, those numeric values is called gematria. So when we add up the numeric values of the four Hebrew letters that are unusually sized in the original text in, in uh, of the list of Haman's sons, uh, we come up with the number 5,707, which actually corresponds to a Hebrew calendar year, which would be our year of uh, 1946 AD. Um, so that that's interesting. So keep that in mind. And then... Uh, so the seventh day of Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, Tabernacles is called Hoshana Rabbath. Um, now, that is the last of the days of judgment. So the Feast of, the feast of Tabernacles is outlined in Leviticus 23, 33-44, uh, for those who want more information on that. But going along with that trend, that gives us the exact date of the when this judgment is supposed to be carried out. It's the seventh day of Sukkot in the Hebrew year 5,707, which would equate to October 16th, um, 1946. Now, the amazing thing is that on that exact day, October 16th, 1946, 10 leading Nazis were hanged in Nuremberg, Germany for their crimes against the Jewish people. There, wow. Yeah, there, there were originally 23 that were on trial, um, 11 of those 23 were sentenced, but one committed suicide before uh, the hanging. And, and even though uh, even though the sentencing was carried out by a, a military tribunal, they didn't end up using a normal form of execution like a firing squad or something that they normally would. But instead, for some reason, they chose for the execution to be done by hanging, fitting right in with uh, Queen Esther's request. Um so how does that connect with the, the, the sons of Haman? Um, it, it's traditionally believed that the German Nazis were uh, of direct descendants of Amalek, thereby making them literal and biological sons of Haman. 
Now, this could be the case. Um, some argue against against that, but uh, it, it's it's at least a valid opinion. But even if that's not the case, even if the whole biology thing isn't there, uh, the the 10 executed Nazis could still have been considered as sons of Haman because they were clearly tied in with the same Antichrist spirit as the original uh, 10 sons of Haman. Um, now, when I say Antichrist spirit, I'm not talking about the Antichrist or, you know, the end time beast. Or it's um, the spirit of Antichrist that, that uh, it's talked about in First John and, and things like that. And I, I go into a lot of detail about the spirit of Antichrist in disclosure. Um, but uh, so at the very least, um, the tie could be made there with this this Antichrist spirit. So th this amazing and in-depth prophecy shows a clear link between Haman's ten sons and the Nazi regime, as well as establishes the uh, legitimacy and accuracy of the Bible. And there actually might even be a future connection with the, um, uh, you know, in Revelation, the ten-headed beast and, and all that. I, I still have to look into that more, but... Uh, for those, that, that's the basic rundown of, of the prophecy. I, I go way into way more detail in my book disclosure and in the in the blog and, and stuff like that. But yeah, that, that's that's the uh, bare bones version of the prophecy. It's absolutely fascinating. Like right right down to the exact date. <laughs> that is fascinating. That's crazy. I hadn't even heard that. Why did we not talk about that in the last interview? Well, you didn't ask. We didn't talk about <laughs> Nazis. That's why. <laughs> yeah. okay so now you've written this new book and this book is called quantum creation subtitle does the supernatural lurk in the fourth dimension now i i requested a copy of this book from gons because nobody sends me books because i am living in a cave and uh have no formal address so he emailed me a copy and just, I've skimmed, okay? <laughs> I've only had it for a couple of days, but just looking at the uh, table of contents here, I'm in love with this book. For those who have been following Canary Cry Radio since the beginning, I mean, I even wrote an article, I don't even know if it's still on the website or not, sort of beginning to talk about some of these quantum things and mainly about time travel. But uh, this subject of how the science of quantum physics and quantum mechanics uh, really works into sort of what some would call metaphysical aspects of reality. I mean, you've done a really good job of breaking this down bit by bit here. I would like to think that this would be a book that I would write if I ever had the, uh, you know, self-motivation and self-discipline to actually sit down and make it happen. Especially but, since you, uh, you started that, I think it was a time travel God and, and something that article that you wrote was part one of a series that was supposed to come out. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> none of the other, articles none of the other articles came ever came to be. I'm just keeping people on the edge of their seats. So, I mean, I'm very excited about this. Now, what made you do this? I mean, how did you possibly find the time, the motivation, and, uh, you know, just the, the inspiration to put this all down in a, big, in a book like this? Well, I think that's where um, 
you know, I, I like I mentioned earlier that I have this bone disease and everything, and but it's it, it actually works to my benefit. Like it's actually been a blessing because uh, it gives me time to be able to really study these things out. You know, I, I don't have a, you know like a regular nine to five job. I physically can't work, right. and uh, so because of that, you know, I'm on disability, which barely covers our rent so right. you know it's not like we're making a ton of money over here or anything but uh, you know all that aside that to me that doesn't even matter because it gives me the time to be able to really study these things out and and, and write and you know do what i i feel i was created to do and i i love doing this stuff it's fascinating but the um the inspiration, uh, I, I've always had an interest in science. Like, I was always the the nerdy kid in school, you know, like, uh, for, for example, uh, Donatello was always my favorite Ninja Turtle. I was that Me kid. Me too. <laughs> yes. <Really>? Yeah. <laughs> That's oh, awesome. Man. We're just kindred spirits, you and I. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. I'm gonna have what to. What does that say about me? Because I was, I was more into Leonardo. Oh my gosh! You, you, you would have been the kid that would have picked on us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was actually it was a wash between Leonardo and Raphael. I, I like them both. But, mm. anyways, I digress. Let's let's <laughs> okay. go back to let's go back to what's more important than Ninja Turtles. The new oh, the I new movie I, doesn't I, look good, by the way. Oh, okay. Let's digress. Just one <laughs> more second. <laughs> I saw. The new Ninja Turtles. I know why in, you saw it, too. In 3D. I know why you saw it. Yeah, of course. My girlfriend's in it. <laughs> was it Was it any good? Megan Fox. Um, I loved it. Really? I loved I that movie. I mean, don't watch it because you like want to relive the old story of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Don't watch it because you want to see humanized turtle faces. Don't watch it for like any reason other than you just want to see a Michael Bay rendition of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles alongside Megan Fox. Like That's why you watch the movie. Um, that being said, I loved it. I didn't... Also, I didn't pay for it, so... <laughs> Oh, even that always, so yeah. Is it so that, true that they, I heard that they were trying, and maybe they didn't go with this, but that the Ninja Turtles was gonna be like aliens or something, like not no, not yeah, the original changed, story. That the, they changed that around a little bit. It's not the original story, but they they were rumored to be to have sort of an alien origin story, but they changed that up. So, anyways, just go see it for fun. It's just do for they, fun. Do they actually stick with like the, the the whole ooze thing? Like that's how they um, originated. More, or? More or less. Oh, okay. I mean, it's not the it's not at all the original story, but they're not aliens. Huh. I think most people would have been outraged if they were aliens. And there's just a number of things that make no sense at all. I mean, it's just <laughs> it's, it's, it's a Michael Bay action. Flick. It's a Michael Bay action movie with make with Megan Fox. Like that's why you go see it. Okay. All right. So, but digression <laughs> over. Okay. Where, where where were we? <laughs> where were we? Okay. Josh is in oh, the science. Oh, quantum yeah. creation. <laughs> the, the mysteries of reality and the universe. Yeah, how how did I get into the Okay. Yeah, so Donatello is my favorite Ninja Turtle, so I was I was kind of a nerdy kid, but right. uh at, at the time, uh you know, when I was a kid that wasn't like advantageous at all but it you know it is now like i never i never lost my love for science but i, I absolutely loved science and everything but i was also raised uh baptist mm -hmm. so a lot of times those two things would conflict and um 
easily one of the best examples was uh, actually since we were talking about aliens, that one of the best examples was um, I, I always had the question, you know, do aliens exist? And if so, where are they in the Bible? Or if they don't exist, then what are they? You know, I, I had that question since I was like 10 years old. And I, you know, of course, science gives all sorts of answers to that. But uh, the, the church that I grew up in really didn't. Like, um, the, the, the main answer that I was given was, well, there are demons and anything beyond that, you just got to take on faith. Like, right. okay, well, that's like 1% of the story. Like, you know, I guess that's, I guess, you know, you could say that's true, but that's like, there's so much more to it. But uh, so, um, but anyway, so there, there was always this, uh, this struggle between, you know, science and faith. And, and right. in my life, faith always won. You know, any time that there was uh, any type of uh, opposition, I, I always would just rely on faith or, or what. I, whatever I believed at the time. Um, now, I didn't, you know, so I, I grew up kind of thinking, well, you know, science has its place and everything, and it's good, but it, it can also be really anti-Christian, so science and religion don't go together. Like, that's just kind of what I always thought. And, uh, well, <clears throat> so year, years and years later, I met my I met my wife, and we, you know, we started dating, and uh, she had told me that at one time, uh, years and years ago, she actually wanted to be an astronaut, and she was starting to, uh, e even back in middle school, she was starting to try to study for that. Uh, but unfortunately, she was in, uh, she was in a really bad car accident, and um, she had a close head injury, and so she can't like go up into space or anything like that. But she still had, you know, she still held on to that interest, and uh, so that. That really provoked a lot of conversations between uh, her and I, and uh, one of her um, one of her biggest in, uh, interests was uh, cosmology and uh, quantum physics. And you know, I like cosmology and stuff too. That's really interesting. But I, I really latched onto quantum physics. So uh, her, her and I, we would just have like our nerd out sessions. You know, we'd watch like Discovery Channel and like you know, like that was like how we would date because we were broke. Beautiful. <laughs> Yeah. And we were both nerds, and still are. And uh, you know, I, I I wear that badge proudly. But uh, so um, so she she really kind of reintroduced me to you know science like science, but from but while putting faith first. And and slowly over time, I I realized it, it took it took a few years for this to really sink in. But I realized that you know it's not that science conflicts with the Bible. It's interpretations of science conflict with the Bible. Right. And that, that was really the start of it. And um, once I realized that, I, I started looking at the same type of uh, scientific observations that were being made and, and, and publicized and realizing, you know, it, it's not the observations that, the observations don't conflict at all with the Bible. You know, that's right. just things that uh, people are actually viewing or or that the the mathematics is is showing um that stuff but it doesn't conflict but the interpretations they try to put on it will and then once i started learning more about the bible and learning just more about you know like this kind of fringe christian community that we're in you know uh and, and started learning other things and everything i i started to realize that most of the interpretations that were put on scientific observations were comparable to Gnosticism, 
And I, I thought that was really strange. Like of all things, why Gnosticism? Uh, because and, and this is this this is what a, a lot of people have. Or, or a lot of Christians will have a problem with uh, things like quantum physics because there are physicists out there that will say quantum physics uh, proves or at least is very strong evidence for the idea that we create the world around us, meaning that we are our own gods. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, that that well, that that is a Gnostic theology, but that's a theology that's completely anti-biblical. You know, we're not our own gods. We're not. The creators, you know, uh, the God of the Bible is is the creator. So that, you know, since those interpretations have been put on things like uh, quantum physics, especially quantum physics has been, uh, you know, kind of like oil and water to the church. Like it just right. doesn't mix. But I, I once I started to realize that I thought, well, shoot, there's 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 nothing wrong with uh, quantum physics. It's just all this Gnostic garbage that they keep putting in there. Um, so that that was the main thing that I wanted to address with this book is that, you know, it's not that science in itself conflicts with the Bible. It's that interpretations of science do. When we have, and and the same could even be said the other way around. Uh, sometimes, such as in uh, Galileo's case, um, interpretations of the Bible <laughs> conflict with things that are actually true. Now, that's not to say that the Bible conflicts with things that are true. The, Bi- the Bible is the truth. But um, there are times that our interpretations of what we think the Bible is saying will conflict with what it actually is saying. So th- there, it, it really goes both ways. When we have the right interpretation of the Bible and the right interpretation of science, they both should go hand in hand. But we ha- we have to always put the Bible first. Like that's not to say that they're equal. Um, the, right. the, the, the Bible has, it, that's our only source of, you know, absolute truth. So we, we have to put the Bible first to help interpret things for us. So that's that's what uh, that that was the main problem that I wanted to address in this book and once I once I realized that myself and um, you know there there are those out there that'll say you know the Bible's not a science book and no it isn't but there are scientific things in there uh, and, and I mean that that's even been proven uh, one of the first things that I talk about in uh, in um, in my book is and I actually got to find the reference now because I actually have it. But uh, the, uh, let me see here. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, Matthew Fontaine Murray, he was an oceanographer who actually first discovered underwater currents by right. taking the, the Psalms of the Bible literally. Uh, Psalm 8.8 8 says, uh, The fowl of the air and the fish of the seas and whatsoever passeth through the paths in the seas. Mm. So he took that literally, uh, you know, before then there, you know, nobody had any concept of underwater currents or anything like that. So he, he wanted to find out what these paths of the seas were all about. Uh, so by using the Bible, he actually made a scientific discovery and he was the first one to discover uh, underwater currents. So stuff like that. I mean, you know, I, I find that fascinating. But right. Uh, so I started to wonder, well, could the same thing be applied with uh, quantum uh, quantum physics, and indeed they can. So uh, I took a lot, you know, I I, I took the the whole book and um, showed some of the some of the things in quantum physics, 
and, and, you know, I, I want to say right off the bat, too, I've been kind of talking for a while, but <laughs> I want to say right off the bat, too, quantum physics, it, it, it's not as difficult to understand as most in the media that talk about it will, you know, right. they'll, they'll make it seem like you have to have a degree or you got to be some sort of genius to get this stuff. You, you don't. You know, that might be that might be true with the math <laughs> involved, but right. I don't really get much into that because I don't understand the math. Yeah. Um, I do trust the math because... Uh, whether you're an atheist or a Christian, one plus one still equals two. So there's not, you know, there's not a whole lot that, you know, it's it, once there's we not get, a lot of debate in the math. In the math, exactly. Right. And, and once we can, uh, you know, now there are mathematicians that'll use some formulas and stuff to say, well, this proves that God is an impersonal force or some weird thing like that. <laughs> you know, th there are there are those that'll say that, but th that's just when we have to know how to separate interpretation from observation. Right. And, you know, so uh, so I, I show that in the book, and then I, so I go through some of the, you know, some of the ideas of quantum physics to show that uh, these things are actually in, in the Word of God, and it's amazing. Right. So I that basically, uh, that's a very long answer your answer to your very short question. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you bring up a good point, which is um, quantum physics actually is pretty intuitive as long as you're not getting into the math. Like right. when you learn about this stuff, almost without having to have somebody spell it out for you, you're like, oh, yeah, that sounds like God. That sounds like something God would do. Oh, yeah, that totally sounds like how things are working you know at least that's what i found when uh looking into kind of the same stuff now you take a few chapters here and you talk about the fourth dimension and then you go on to talk about 10 dimensional theory now that's three chapters you take explaining this so you could obviously go on for quite a while but briefly what can you <laughs> tell us about your uh your fourth dimensional uh, explanations that you have here in the book. Yes, I'll I'll do my best to keep this brief. And even in <laughs> even in the book, even taking three chapters was still pretty brief. Right. But, but uh, yeah. So okay. Um, the first thing that I had to really look into was what is the fourth dimension because I always thought it was time. Mm -hmm. And I when I started reading all these books with uh, other physicists and stuff. Uh, it, it seemed like some of them were referring to the fourth dimension as time, and, but then other times they were talking about something else, and I, I was I got real confused about that. Uh, but what what it what it is is that you know some some believe that time is the fourth dimension. They're absolutely correct, and then some believe that. Uh, the fourth dimension is a is a higher dimension of space, and they're absolutely correct too. It just mm. depends on the context. It, it's it's uh it, it's a term that can mean two different things, so it all depends on the context. Most of the, these those three chapters that you're talking about, I I talk about the the higher dimension of space. Uh, so I'll, I'll say you know like the fourth spatial dimension or something. Um, now, time is a you know is a dimension too, but Einstein was even able to show that time and space are woven together. So really, time is in all of the spatial dimensions, or or at least at the very least, the three that we live in that you know we can we can actually perceive. But uh, so seeing the the fourth dimension as a type of space is completely impossible to envision, or or and and it's really. You know, I said this stuff is easy to understand. Um, th this is something that uh, 
you know, the, the concept of it is easy to understand to, to a point, but it, it's impossible for us to envision or to really wrap our heads around because it's something that's outside of what we were built to, uh, you know, perceive. perceive. Yeah. So, so there, there've been a lot of ways that people that, you know, physicists have tried to get this idea of cross of the fourth spatial dimension. And, uh, you know, I'll say up front, you know, why the reason why I believe it's important is because I think, I believe the fourth spatial dimension is actually the, um, the the part of the spirit world that kind of coincides with our own and bleeds through our own sometimes. Um, I, I wouldn't necessarily say the fourth spatial dimension is is heaven. You know, maybe it's a part of it, but um, you know, because there are higher dimensions and everything. But uh, like when, um, for 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 example, when uh, when Satan and the angels fell, uh, there could be somebody would be able to make a strong case that when they fell, they actually fell to the fourth spatial dimension. Um, and I, I get a little into that in the book, but basically what, the, okay. So what the fourth dimension is, um, we have, you know, we live in three dimensions of space. Uh, if we remember back to our middle school geometry classes, um, we there uh, everything in the reality that we can perceive can be plotted by an X, Y, and Z axes. Um, those are the the three basic, you know, we have left, right, front, backwards, up and down. That's it. That's what we have. Those are our three dimensions of space. Mm -hmm. So the idea of a fourth spatial dimension says that there are actually extra um, um, directions of space. We just, we can't perceive them. And the, be the best explanation I've ever heard of that, th this is one that... Pretty much every physicist will use is uh, the idea of something called flatland. Back in 1800 something, I, I forget the exact year, but there was this uh, th this book called Flatland that was written by um, A. Abbott, and the main character in the book is a two-dimensional being uh, called a square, and it's actually kind of funny the. Uh, the the main character the name is like a play off of the author's name a squared you know two a's a abbott a, a, a right right so kind of dirt nerdy kind of thing but you know it's it's interesting but anyway so uh the the main character is his name is a square and he's a two-dimensional being me meaning he his whole universe exists on just uh an x and y axis there's no up or down so you could envision this on like your tabletop or something at home right uh, they the the flatlanders their you know their their universe is called flatland so the flatlanders have no concept of up or down um so uh the the idea is uh that the author was trying to get across he, he was actually trying to explain the fourth dimension by using by using this as like a thought exercise uh because the main character actually comes in contact with the 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 third spatial dimension so the whole idea in the book is how would how would a like a human, like a three-dimensional being, like how how would somebody like us be able to explain ourselves to someone who can only perceive two dimensions? Like right. say say we were able, like say we stuck our finger through Flatland. Um, the the way that that would look to the Flatlander would be just a a circle. Well, actually, from a Flatlander's perspective, it would just be a line. But uh, when our finger first breaches their space, it would 
you know, it would just appear as a, a point that, you know, just pops up out of nowhere. And then uh, this point would grow in size into a longer line as your finger passes through. And if you kept doing that, it, you know, to stick your whole hand through, um, as your uh, as your pointer finger and ring finger go through, they would see two more points pop up out of nowhere that, uh, you know, extend into these curved lines. Um, and as your hand goes through, they would see those lines connect together uh, into one long line. And then as your wrist goes through, they would see that line shrink. Um, so, while, and as you pull your hand out, they would see the whole thing again in reverse. So the idea is now um, that, that technically the Flatlander has seen your whole hand, but they really have no real grasp of it because they can only they can only look at it in two dimensional sections. Right. Uh, so that that that's all they have. So how, you know how how can we truly be able to express ourselves or explain ourselves to a flatlander? So that that's the idea when we think about the for, the fourth spatial dimension. Like let's right. say um, a a hypersphere, which is a sphere um, of four spatial dimensions instead of three. Let's say a hypersphere were to breach our space. You know, what would that look like? We would see a point, um, you know, just a point in space appear out of nowhere. And as as the hypersphere is moving through space, we would just see a stationary sphere grow in size and then shrink in size as the hypersphere is moving out of our space. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's it's totally weird and crazy. And, you know, it's something that is hard to wrap our minds around. But um, that's that's the idea of what the fourth spatial dimension is. And I, I believe that there are actually uh, examples of, of this in the Bible. Um, one of what one of the the the, the flatland analogies that's used in the in the in the book Flatland that I I mention in in my book is this idea of how would a Flatlander be imprisoned in jail and this this was actually something that was written in in the book Flatland. Um, well, the way to imprison a Flatlander in jail, you just have to draw a circle around them. <laughs> you know that's it. They have no concept of up or down, so they can't escape. But if a higher dimensional being, a, th a three spatial dimensional being, you know, a person, a human were to come up, um, they could pull the Flatlander into the third dimension right. using the Z axis. The Z -axis. And then, yeah, and then set them aside uh, outside of the, the circle jail thing. So to other Flatlanders, it would look like the imprisoned Flatlander just disappeared and then reappeared outside of the jail cell. But right. in reality, it, he's just being lifted out. Well, so, it, it, it makes a lot of sense when you connect that with, um, uh, well, for instance, just to put it in a little bit of plain words to make the connection here, basically what you're saying is if, if this fourth dimension exists, any sort of clue that we would get here in three dimensions would be completely abstract and wouldn't really be able to get the full picture. Right. Now, and when you talk about the, I mean, which would explain a lot of the mystery sort of surrounding the spiritual world. And like, we, we only see certain things like certain miracles or anomalies in the sky. And, you know, we think it's one thing, but it could possibly just be an aberration of what it actually is in the fourth dimension. Now, 
talking about the in jail thing, it's very interesting because if you compare it to um, certain people in the Bible, perhaps being yep. put in jail and being taken out of jail in a miraculous way, you know, yeah. um, by an angel and you know what I mean? And so, and we would see this happen in our third, in our three dimensions, but it could possibly look totally different in a fourth dimension, how all of that is working. Absolutely. And I, I made that, that exact uh, comparison of Peter's jailbreak in the, in the book, because in the Bible it says that the, the shackles just fell off of him. They, they right. fell off his hands. I, I think it might be possible, you know, there's no way to really prove this through the text because it's not that specific, but I think it's possible that the shackles actually fell through his hands. Right. Yeah. You know, and and I think that that's how because if we think about if if um if a higher dimension was being used to release Peter and you know if the fourth spatial dimension exists then why not you know why not use it if they you know if if uh if the angel that released him could right it would be uh, the best way to do it. it exactly it would just be like the the flatlander in jail you know what's the best way if i wanted to release a flatlander i just have to lift him out of there you know yeah it's, you it's, just it's, touch him and you pull him into the third dimension for a moment yep. and then he gets taken out exactly how peter was he was just for a moment taken out of the third dimension into the fourth his shackles fall off and then he's back in the third dimension there yep exactly and i i go through that whole thing and uh and show that in the book and that's not that's not to try to put that's not to try to like naturalize miraculous things because it's still miraculous it's still you know it's still god we're talking about so it's right. not you know it's not to you know kind of dumb down the miraculous or to kind of you know take the the holiness out of it right. <laughs> and i think for those who are you know scientifically accepting i think that that makes it much more miraculous. I mean, that yeah. puts God in a whole new level from the religiously imaginary into the amazingly uh, reality. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And that, that's, that's exactly what I was trying to show all throughout this book is that, you know, we could actually use this as an apologetic tool because if we're talking to somebody, I mean, even with, uh, I even dedicate, which I, you know, well, you'll probably ask about, but I'll just kind of touch on it. But I even dedicate a whole uh, uh, chapter to um, uh, the the topic of UFOs and how they kind of morph, and you know, some some of them seem to be able to change shape and stuff like that. Right. Uh, I, I I dedicate a whole chapter of how you know if somebody is convinced that these things are extraterrestrial, how how are we to witness to them or, you know, evangelize to somebody like that. You got to meet them on their own terms. And I dedicate a whole chapter of that. So I think that a lot of this could actually be used as an apologetic tool, uh, besides just being absolutely fascinating. <laughs> you have a whole chapter on evangelizing to extraterrestrials? No, no, <laughs> okay, okay. no, not to ETs themselves, to somebody who believes that UFOs right. are extraterrestrial. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not judging, man. I mean, somebody's got to be looking out for those guys. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think they've already made their choice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, there's, there was an article that came out just a few days ago uh, from recording this. And uh, it was a pretty big news story, and it was, uh, at least the way NBC News reported it, do we live in a 2D hologram? Physicists aim to find out. And they're doing some experiments right now with a thing called the holometer, which is the holographic interferometer, 
and they're basing their theory on their theories based on the black holes. And basically their idea is that because of their cues from theoretical study of black holes, the suggestion that all information is locked up inside these black holes, that we can be encoded in this 2D surface that's actually a hologram. So, I mean, you know, science is trying to figure out what's going on anyway. And I think, you know, going back to some of the things you were talking about initially when we started talking about this, I think the biggest thing that the discrepancy between maybe the believer looking at science and, and sort of an atheistic naturalistic worldview person looking at science it comes down to uh, the philosophy of science, right? How, how to understand the, the, the information. And it's interesting because just recently, a uh, William Lane Craig podcast, William Lane Craig being one of the uh, top apologists, Christian apologists and philosophers of our time, uh, he was refuting Neil deGrasse Tyson. I'm sorry, Basil. I know you're a big Neil uh, DeGrasse Tyson fan, but Neil DeGrasse Tyson basically poo-pooed all other study of philosophy, saying that it's unnecessary and it's pointless, and he, you know, he had all these arguments oh, yeah. for it. But it's really, you know, what's interesting, and, and I think uh, and more or less what Dr. Craig pointed out was Neil DeGrasse Tyson himself uses philosophy to interpret the data. You know, the yeah. data is the data. It's the philosophy of science and and how we interpret it that determines the worldview so you know that's what it really comes down to and i you know i was also listening to a sam harris interview recently sam harris being another one of those you know atheists and he's really getting into the spirituality without religion is his recent book and all this stuff trying to show that like neuroscience and and you know these different aspects of what we know through science can give us a sense of spirituality uh, without the need for God or the spirit realm or, you know, all this stuff, which is again, sort of contradictory. It's they want so badly to experience the things that, you know, the religious sort of context gives them with a greater sense of the universe and a connection to it and all this stuff. But they don't, you know, they don't want to necessarily go to God, but instead what I find interesting is they sort of default at this Gnostic sort of view without even really realizing it you know they're yeah. they really are touting this gnostic view so you know i think you pointing that out was really you're pretty spot on when it comes to that yeah yeah absolutely and and you know the the, inter the interesting thing is um like i was saying about the mathematics before uh they all point to god and, and so when physicists who have already decided that they don't want to go there you know they they don't want that to be <laughs> the answer uh when they come across mathematics that actually do support a uh a creator they have a problem uh either they have to convert <laughs> which you know some of them don't want to do or they have to come up with uh, some other answer and there's no way to do that objectively and not you know not come to the reality of God. So they have to, um, whether they're realizing it or not, and you know, and I, I believe most of them don't realize what they're doing. I, you know, I think probably some of them do, but I, I don't think all of them, uh, or even necessarily most of them, uh, realize what they're doing, but they will, uh, they, they have to uh, re replace it with other some other theology. And it, it does seem to always go back to 
Gnosticism for some strange reason. I don't know why. I mean, you know, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. So, I mean, the, all of these uh, doctrines of devils and things, you know, they have a, a spiritual um, uh, origin. I, I don't know why the enemy has chosen Gnosticism. Well, I mean, even Gnosticism itself is is a subset of an even older uh, religion going all the way back, really, to the garden. Um, right. Because that was like you know that was one of the promises that the serpent made to Eve was that you you know you you can be as gods and whatever and so that that's something that uh, Gnosticism teaches is that you are your own god and that's something that uh, a lot of modern quasim or quantum <laughs> quantum physics <laughs> will uh, will try to say is that you know these the mathematics here show that we are the creators of our own reality. Like, um, like in that documentary, what the bleep do we know? Uh, I don't know. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that, but Oh man. (laughs) Yeah, no, I've seen that. I I, I saw it a while ago, actually. It it did get me. It was one of those early films that you watch. I think I actually saw it before I was a believer. Yeah. And, uh, really got me curious about some of these issues, you know, and trying to, and of course, you know, their their whole thing is Gnosticism without really even saying it. You know, they kind of present it as science, right? They're like, oh, this yeah. is very scientific. <laughs> but, uh, you know, to the keen eye, it's it's pretty obvious that they're not. Oh, yeah. That's not what they're touting. Yeah. And, you know, what's funny about that, too, is that, um, yeah, it, it is kind of older. I think it came out in like 2002 or something. So it's been around for a while. But, you know, what's funny about that is they they, they marketed it as you know, a documentary about science and specifically quantum physics. And when you first start watching it, you think that's what it's going to be. But then you realize that, you know, maybe, maybe, and I'm probably being generous by even saying this, but maybe 10% of that whole documentary is even scientific. You know, they, they got a couple of things that, you know, are scientifically accurate, but most of it is all interpretation. And you know, what's funny, what's really funny about that too is, um, in every documentary I've ever seen, and you know, I, I love documentaries. I, I watch them a lot. Every single one, when they have somebody speaking, the moment that they have them speaking, they'll put their name and profession right underneath, so you know, you know who who's talking, and oh, this is a credible source of information. You know, uh, people that make a documentary, they want to do that to you know give uh, give uh, uh, legitimacy to their their movie well in in what the bleep do we know do we know uh the whenever somebody gets on to talk there's no name given no profession nothing it's just people talking they don't even they don't give that information until the very 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 end i think it's even after the credits but it's it's not until the very end and you realize most of these people are theologians and most like like new age or like yoga instructors and stuff like (laughs) like people people that you know are talking as if they are physicists but they're not like you know a couple of them were, but every single person that's talking on there, they're they're making it seem. So I, I don't know. I, I thought that yeah. was kind of a, a underhanded way of going about it. No, but. It, it's a very good point though, actually, because sort of the new age world has just viciously la- latched on to the whole uh, you know scientific discovery of these new quantum um, you know aspects of creation and. It really is a basis for almost the whole modern New Age movement. You know, yeah. I mean, there's uh, there's endless hours of YouTube videos 
explaining how because of all this quantum mechanics coming out, you know, it proves almost exactly what you've been talking about, which is like, we are gods and we create our own reality. And, you know, through meditation, you can create your own world. And, yeah. you know, it, it just gets, that's an interesting thing about, you know, what you're talking about with the, the, the interpretation of these scientific discoveries is it's being applied to a lot of different belief systems. Yeah. Um, and I think it, you know, it may be just sort of this frenzy of everybody at the same time rushing to, at this possibility yeah. of unseen things. Well, that that's actually, I talk about that in Age of Deceit too, and actually cite Chris Putnam, you know, he recently wrote, wrote the book, uh, The Supernatural Worldview. And Chris talks about that. He says materialism, as far as Chris can tell, is dying in the academic world. Because yeah. it's just it's insufficient in providing you know significant answers, so what's happening is they're abandoning it and they're again like like you said Basil they're kind of frantically looking for the alternative right so what so what is it really and what's being adopted is more of a pantheistic monism you know this this idea that we are gods within this world that's you know constructed for us consciousness is God you know there's all kinds of different renditions of it but. You know the quantum mechanics thing, especially with uh, you know some of the spooky, what is it called? The spooky thing. I can't remember the exact name. Spooky action. Spooky at a action. Distance. Yeah, yeah. That that kind of stuff. Spooky action. I'll let you sort of dive into some of that. But what did you find as far as um, the experiments done in quantum physics that seem to determine this sort of new agey pantheistic view? Yeah, yeah. And this was something that I. I I always found so fascinating, but I couldn't, I wasn't ever really able to reconcile it with a, you know, a biblical worldview or a Christian worldview until really researching for this book. But, you know, there's a lot of things in uh, quantum physics like that where it would seem that the, at least on, uh, you know, a subatomic scale, that the observer is creating his own reality. And well, what's really going on is um, okay. So the whole the whole uh, spooky action at a distance thing that's something that uh, Einstein actually uh, that that was what he called quantum entanglement, and he he was not a fan of uh, quantum physics at all. Uh, he he and uh, Niels Bohr actually kind of went at it, but uh, Niels Bohr actually turned out to be to be uh, right. Um, but what quantum entanglement? Uh, oh, where to start with that? Well, okay, we'll start with like a, a brief uh, explanation of the double slit experiment, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, I there there's a lot of variations of it, but we'll use uh, we'll we'll say photons because that, that's that's what'll that's what I use in the book, and that's what kind of actually I think I use electrons in the book, but whatever. Okay, so you, you, the idea is uh, you have a um, machine that fires out. Um, a particle, like let's say an electron or photon, just for sake of this discussion, I'll say a photon because it goes into the quantum entanglement thing later. But uh, and it, it shoots it out at a um, uh, at a screen that has in front of it uh, um, something blocking it that just it just has two slits. Uh, in the middle that are that are open. I'm I'm explaining this terribly, but <laughs> so, well, so you you have you have the okay so you have these two open two slits 
something in front of the screen that can detect the photons that are being fired out. So you have like a photon cannon kind of thing right. firing out, and uh, this thing is blocking the photons, only allowing uh, the ones to go through that that'll go through those two slits. Uh, and then the, then the pattern that they make on the screen in the back, you know, can actually be measured and and. So the idea was they expected in doing this experiment that the pattern on the back would just show the two slits. You know, imagine if you were just to shine a flashlight through something like that, you know, or the, shooting the paintballs through the two yeah. slits. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you, the, the idea, the idea was that they, they thought it would show just two the two slits, but what it actually, what it actually showed, which was, which was fascinating was, um, a uh, a series of columns of of photons, uh, and they they didn't know they they didn't understand why it, what it was do why it was uh, projecting in that way, um, but yeah it was uh, it was like it was column after column after column of of, of photons all along the the back screen, so um, and th this actually is what led to uh, being able to show that light is a wave and a particle. Um, they they were able to show that in in that experiment that light was reacting as a wave. Like imagine if you were to do that with water. Like if you had um if you had the whole double slit experiment thing set up, but uh, the room was like say halfway filled up with water, so that the water could only go through uh you know those two slits if you take a um if you take a piece of wood or something and smack the water so it ripples when the rip when the when the first ripple hits the uh the two slits it'll create more ripples between the two slits right. and then by the time it gets to the back you know the the back section it would be column after column of of where the water is actually hitting so that that's what they were able to show with the with the photons that it behaves as a wave. Now, the really interesting thing, and what what this has to do with the whole quantum entanglement entanglement thing, and uh, is they were able to show that when the experiment is actually observed by by like means of putting um, putting a uh, like a photon detector kind of thing uh, to try to map out the path that the photon takes. Right. Just just the act of observing it destroys the experiment, and that when they do the experiment trying to observe it, it is actually what you would expect. Just the just the two slits. That's what's shown on the back screen. Right. So that confused a lot of people, and it actually still there is still a lot of confusion about that about what's really going on. Um, well, what one of the things. Uh, when it comes to observation on such a small scale, one of the things that we have to remember is is when we're observing something, we're actually adding photons because we have to we have to see it. You know, we see by light. Um, so when we when we do an experiment of anything at that scale, uh, we're if we want to actually look at it, we're adding in more. Uh, more particles, so we're already destroying our own experiment. So it doesn't mean that we're creating our own reality. It just means we're destroying our own experiment because <laughs> right. there, there, there's really no way to observe it without adding more photons. So uh, what they were able to show is um, 
it is it would be like uh you know when they turn the lights on let's say it would be like if you're trying to shoot um like a single drop of water through the two slits yet you have a fire hose going on uh you know showering down right. <laughs> on that water you know it's it's going to destroy it it's the same with photons um so that that's that's what the whole thing with the metal or the the uh particle detector was but there are there are other things too that are that are strange and inexplicable uh with photons such as quantum entanglement which uh basically if somehow photons are able to communicate with one another at faster than light speeds which should be impossible and th this is this is what Einstein called spooky action at a distance. If you take one photon and um, they, they use the example of like uh, like another photon on the moon or something. Um, if you do something to one photon at an absolute instant, the other photon will react. Uh, now they, they haven't, you know, they can't test it in that great of distances, but they've been able to test it between miles and miles where if there was a delay in the communication between one photon to another they would have been able to to, to detect it right um but even in those experiments they it, they were able to show that it's still at an absolute instant and nobody knows why because <laughs> it's it's faster than light it's not supposed to be possible but right. it's still it's still happening um so I, I get a little bit into that in the book, but you know stuff like that to me, I to me that th those are things that just proclaim m even more of God. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> the the speed of light has been the absolute of uh, science ever since Einstein, and now when we discover something that reacts faster than the so-called absolute of the universe, it does sort of open up all sorts of brain spaces, as I like to call them, about, you know, when once the speed of light was God, in a sense, there is now something higher than that. And we can scientifically verify it. And so that's very interesting. Um, now, in the book, I mean, you talk about dimensions a lot. We got a lot of dimensional things going on here. But you have a little section at the end, chapter 10, higher than higher dimensional creation. And you, there's a little section here called how many Yahweh's. <laughs> and what are you talking about, bro? Oh, man, this, this, this was something that... Uh... Uh, and, and actually, Gans, I, I, you know, I'm glad this got brought up because I referenced a video that's on your YouTube page of uh, uh -oh. Mike, Mike, Michael Heiser, the uh, the Jewish Trinity thing that that uh, goes into his basic the same eight idea. Eight-hour lecture by Dr. <laughs> Michael Heiser on my channel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So don't get rid of that because I. I <laughs> <laughs> but uh no he 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 touches on uh well I, I should say you know he he came up with his way before I did so I should say I touch on this on some of the same ideas he does but uh <laughs> where to begin uh it's 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 fascinating now we're not talking about other gods you know there is only one god Yahweh of the Bible and you know so I want to say that up front so people don't misunderstand what I'm trying to say here All uh right, 
mister. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so we we are only talking about one one uh one god, but this god has a trinitarian nature about him. And he, you know, he's our god is different than anything that he's ever created. Um that's why you know there's none like him. So you know, mo- most listening are probably familiar with the idea of you know the Holy Trinity that that is uh, usually New Testament stuff is is used to verify that. But uh, you know, I I believe it's actually an Old Testament teaching as well. And just so there is no misunderstanding, I'm not. I promise, I'm not denying the Trinity. I'm not saying anything different about the Trinity that any Baptist would say. Like that's that's a part of my you know Baptist upbringing that I have held on to is you know the Trinitarian nature of our God. And I'm not. Just so there is no misunderstanding, because I, I know. It just seems, you know, lately when people bring up the Trinity, people get kind of sensitive. And uh, so I'm not saying anything wacky here. You know, this is all this is all biblical stuff. So um, but and I and I that's why in the book I referenced Michael Heiser's video because he goes into way more detail than I do. And, um, uh, you know, he, he makes a really strong case for essentially the, the same thing. And uh, it's it, it's fascinating. But um, any, anyway, so. So most are probably familiar with the idea of the Holy Trinity, that, you know, the idea of God existing is like a sort of separate yet equal three yet one entity kind, you know, in the form of, you know, there's the Father, Yahweh, Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. So, as I said, most of the time that's taught from a New Testament, you know, and there's a lot, there's plenty of New Testament stuff to go on to get a good understanding of it. Um but I, you know, I was I was wondering if that was a New Testament thing or if that was actually something that was taught in the Old Testament as well, because I, you know, growing up in the Baptist church, I was never we we didn't really get into the Old Testament much. Um, and now the reason that this is in this book particularly, because you know, what does that have to do with quantum physics? Uh, the tenth chapter, you know, up until the ninth, I talk about the. Um, the whole creation, you know, everything that God created and how there is a possibility of actually 12, you know, 11, most would say, but 12 dimensions. Um, but I didn't want to just stop at the creation. I wanted to get into, you know, the creator himself. So that's what chapter 10 talks about, you know, who, who put all this together. And and one of the things that I stated first off in the, in, in the book is that I believe that God encodes... Um, examples of himself in his creation and uh so that that's kind of what the 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 10th chapter is about is showing that uh, but anyway um so deuteronomy 6 4 tells us that there's one lord you know and that's the, the word lord there's translated from the sacred name of god yahweh so when we talk about yahweh i'm sure most of your listeners are probably familiar with with that that's who we're that's who we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, as I said, he possesses a lot of qualities that set him apart from any other entity. Uh, most obvious, he's the one that created everything and <laughs> everyone in existence, physical and spiritual. Um, now, apart from that, he can call out the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end, uh, which is something that I deal with showing how he's outside of time. Uh, he can inject himself into time as he sees, sees fit, but time itself is a creation of his. And, and if you want, we could talk, we could get into that later, but because um, the whole time travel thing's really <laughs> exciting too. Uh, but anyway, so uh, the first time that I was really confronted with um, is there a 
Trinity type of thing explained in the Old Testament was uh, an idea that I, I was sort of brought up with. It wasn't really taught in church, but it was just kind of an idea of something that was referred to as the pre-incarnate Jesus. You know, did uh, did Jesus ever interact uh, with people before you know he was born? Like, is there a pre-incarnate Jesus? And there were a lot of ideas about that, uh, but nothing was real concrete. But um, that that always fascinated me, and uh, one one verse that always stuck out uh, was Genesis nineteen twenty four that says, uh, and it's talking about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Here it says, then the Lord then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. So it's it's oddly worded, and that that's something that I must I must have read you know hundreds of times, and I never really thought much about it, just kind of glossed over it, but uh, when we really look at that, it's it's weird. And uh, so I, you know, I'm looking at it in the Hebrew, you can, it, it, it's actually like that in the Hebrew too. Um, so come to find out there's actually a lot of stuff uh, throughout the Bible that's worded weird like that, where God will, you know, it, it, it's like... <sighs> You know the Lord from the Lord. You know it's it's just weird. It, we we would we would look at that and say that it's grammatically incorrect. Right. But I I don't believe that's what's going on. I I think that it's actually trying to communicate something. And mm, um, that's interesting. Yeah, M Michael Heiser uses the term the second Yahweh. Now that's not again. That's not to say that there's another God or that you know there's another host you know that it's one god we're talking about his nature here right. um michael heiser uses the term the second yahweh to to explain this uh we we could say pre-incarnate jesus that would be just fine um uh but it, we we can uh we we can pick it up in the link like okay uh amos uh 4 11 um now, Yahweh uses this to refer to himself, this weird thing. Uh, he says, uh, I have overthrown some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and ye were as fire, a firebrand plucked out of the burning, yet ye have not returned unto me, saith the Lord. So you can notice the language there. The end of the verse tells us who's talking, saith the Lord, and this whole verse is spoken by Yahweh. He starts off by referring to himself as I in the beginning of the verse, but then sometimes switches to third-person language as he points back to when uh, God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. So he's he's referring to himself, but as another person, yet it's still him. Now, th this is something that, you know, we can't, we're not going to be able to fully get our heads around how how he can be three yet one, you know, it, it's one God yet three persons yet still want you, 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 we can't really wrap our heads around that because we're you know we're not really created to right. you know um but um so in the in this uh in this section how many yahweh's i i show how there are times that and say an angel is uh is referenced and it's talking about god or, or jesus and you know again they're all the same entity uh one that uh one that was really interesting was um for me was the 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 word uh the, the, now okay in john 1 1 it says um that uh in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god so 
the word was with God and the word was God. <laughs> so it's it's the same kind of odd language. And I, you know, when I when I was kind of brought up with this stuff, I always thought that the, that was kind of a new just a New Testament thing. But when we look at the word in um in the Old Testament, John was that was actually explaining an Old Testament principle and was building upon that and showing that the word was, you know, Jesus. Uh, the very first appearance of the word of the Lord is in uh, the book of Genesis. It's, uh, look at my notes here, uh, 15.1. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is, you know, Eliezer of Damascus. So it might make sense at first to think that this is simply describing God's voice. And a lot of times when we think of the word of God, that's what we think of. And, and there are times that that is accurate, such as Hebrews 11.3, which, you know, we might get into. Um, but uh, there are times that that is accurate, that it is just God's voice. But in here, we have to keep in mind that the uh, verse 1, it states that this is a vision, meaning it's something that Abram saw. Uh, nothing else visual is described here. So the only thing that he could be seeing uh, is the word, the, the word of the Lord. So we're dealing with something more than just a voice. And to show this further, uh, we could look at um, uh, three passages here. I'll just quickly run through these. First uh, Samuel 3, 1 says, uh, And the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was precious in those days. There was no open vision. First uh, Samuel three ten says, uh, and the Lord came and stood and called as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel answered, Speak, for thy, ser thy servant heareth. And then First uh, uh, Samuel 3, 21 says, And the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel, Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Uh, now, in all honesty, the entire third chapter of Samuel you know, could be read through to get a full grasp of the message, but that'll take a lot of time. But we can, uh, we can use just those three verses to show that the word of the Lord, it's not merely a voice, but it's actually a visual uh, manifestation of Yahweh himself. Uh, in verse, verse 1, we read that the word of the Lord was precious, or that's to say uh, scarce in those days. Um, then by by use of the semicolon right there in the verse to show that it's further explaining the same point, it says that there was no open vision. So this is telling us that the word of the Lord, that when the word of the Lord appeared, it would be through a vision, meaning, again, something that we can see. Uh, so verse, verse 10 further supports that because we read that the Lord stood and called Samuel. This means that the Lord was present while he was calling Samuel. Samuel. This is not describing like a disembodied voice. You know, a, a voice would lack the ability to stand. Um, it's describing Yahweh himself. And then in verse 21, we read that the Lord revealed himself by the word of the Lord. So the word of the Lord was something that Samuel was able to see. Um, and it's possible that Yahweh uses these things such as, uh, and I go, I go into a lot of other examples, but the word or uh, the, the name or the angel, uh, you know, it's possible that he, he uses some of these things so that he can be in the presence of a person without that person losing their life through the experience. Uh, 
Um, right. you know, I, I actually, sorry to cut you off. I, yeah, no, go ahead. I actually go into a lot of this in my own book and I took it from a different angle. I was actually trying to explain the physicality of God, especially in the old Testament and, you know, Yahweh appearing as a burning fire. I think Doug Hamp really got into that, but I, I tried to, you know, vet that myself and I go through several scriptures that talk about that. And then the angel of the Lord being, you know, a potentially pre-incarnate Jesus, but very physical in his appearance. Yeah. You know, there's a couple overlaps on on the scriptures that we cite. So, you know, I'm stealing your stuff, bro. <laughs> but um, <laughs> there's there's one that that I thought was interesting was um, it's Exodus 23, 20 through 21, and it says, "Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way, and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him." For he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. Yep. And, and so mm. it's like, okay, so your name, he, your name is his name, but you're like talking about him as in he's in a different being, but you're saying you are. I mean, it just kind of adds up to this whole idea that, you know, maybe he's just appearing in, in different dimensions, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, it's, it's so interesting. And I, you know, I actually, I actually use that, uh, use that same verse too, um, uh, in in my book. And actually, if we use that one with, uh, I think Jude and and another one. Let me see if I can find it in my notes. But it, it, the Bible actually says that it was uh, that that angel of the Lord was actually Jesus Himself. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I mean, there and uh, you know, it's in the. It's in the it's in the Greek in, in Jude, so you gotta you know hunt around a little bit for it, but it's it's there. Um, and yeah. if I if I can find it, but uh, but yeah, I, I I go through that in the book, but but yeah, it's it's absolutely fascinating. Uh, I I think I what were you gonna say? Well, I was gonna say you know this whole idea of a pre-incarnate Jesus and and a lot of other things in the Bible also have been used to sort of I'll use the word fantasize about time travel. Right. And I use that word in the example of my own life. So you have a section of the book here under chapter nine, the mysteries of time and entropy, simply titled time travel. Mm -hmm. So what do you get into there? And are you going to make all of my dreams come true? (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) I knew it was going to be you. yeah, I, I I thought I already have made your dreams come through, and I'm very through. tough I, to please. I, I'm 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 sensing that you're high maintenance, man. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I I th- th- this was something that I definitely wanted to get into in the book, and I had no idea where it was going to lead. But I knew doing a book like this, you you can't leave time travel out of it. You know, you you got to talk about it. And uh, right. um, I when I first. Uh, it was actually funny how it happened because what well when I was writing the book i I was just gonna kind of go into what entropy is and and you know um the the basic thing I was gonna talk about in the in this chapter was um the theological problems that some people will have with ideas about time travel and that there you know when we look at it objectively there really aren't the there really aren't all these theological problems that we might think uh and that that's what i was going into 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 show but uh 
my wife and I were, it was, it was while I was uh, getting ready to write this chapter, my uh, wife and I were having one of our nerd out sessions and we were watching, um, uh, we were watching some, I, I don't remember the name of it, but it was, a, it was a documentary we had found and there is a physicist, it was all about this physicist who specializes in uh, time travel theory and um, his name's uh, Dr. Ronald Mallet. So we watched this whole thing about how he may have discovered a way that time travel, at least for particles, is uh, might might be possible. Mm -hmm. And you know, he makes a lot of sense. And then I I thought, well, I wonder I wonder how hard it would be to get a hold of this guy. And so j just on a whim, I really wasn't expecting anything. You know, because I, I and when we watched that, I had remembered seeing him on TV. Uh, years before, like maybe 10, 10 years ago or something be be before that. And I, I, I remembered it and I was like, oh, I, I, I remember that guy. And so I, I was thinking, you know, I wonder how hard it would be to get a hold of this guy. And, um, oh, I, you know, that's something that I want to interject to real quick before I forget. Uh, I, I was able to, and it's just by the grace of God that this happened, because I'm nobody important or special or anything, but I was able to get interviews with people for this book that I, I had no idea would even be possible. So uh, the, the the creator of the series V and uh, Alien Nation, I remember watching Alien Nation when I was a kid, uh, mm -hmm. Kenneth Johnson, um, mm -hmm. he, he, he actually he was gracious enough to offer his time for an interview for this book. So, uh, fans of his, you know, there's an interview of, of him for the book. I got, a uh, um, Dr. Dr. Mallet. I, to, you know, continue on that story. I, uh, <laughs> I, uh, wrote him an email and, and said, Hey, you know, I'm writing this book about trying to in integrate quantum physics with, uh, with the Bible. And, uh, I don't know if that's something you would be interested in, offering an interview for but I, I would love to ask you some questions and publish it in the book if, if you wouldn't mind and um right away he he, he wrote back and he, he said that you know he, he said that he'd be happy to but he wanted to you know he wanted a little more information first so excuse me um so uh i, I wrote him back i gave him all the information basically that i had and you know i said i'm not I'm not some big time author or anything like that. I, you know, I self publish it, you know, uh, I can't offer you any money. I don't have any, I said, but what I can do is, uh, um, cause he, he wrote a book too. And I, I, I said, I can, you know, uh, you can talk about your book cause it has to do with the topic anyway. Mm -hmm. So he, he was happy to, uh, he, he was happy to give an interview. So there's a, it's actually the longest interview in the book. Um, I asked him all sorts of questions about about if time travel is possible. And before the uh, before the interview started, because we we did it over the phone, uh, we when I met him, it actually turns out he's a believer too, which I I didn't know that going into it. I just assumed you know physicist atheist you know, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it turns out that you know. I, happily you know it turned out that he he's a believer too so there was that that whole angle of it which was it was kind of nice to to get but um so going into the actual that that's the the story of how that interview happened but uh so i asked him a ton of questions um and the the basic one is just is time travel possible and you know he he said well we already know that time travel into the future 
is possible, even if it's only by a few microseconds. And, you know, he talked about how uh, when you go, um, when you speed up, you know, everything else, you know, time time slows down. He, he, he talked a lot about that, which is a topic I, I dealt with more in the book, too, because that has amazing uh, implications right there. Right. Um, so he, he, he talked a little bit about that. And he said, so, you know, if, if one were, if one wanted to travel into the future, they would just have to increase their speed, <laughs> basically. Right. And uh, time slows down for that person while time, you know, stays normal for the rest of us. So you could be going, I, I don't know the exact uh, percentages or the exact ratio or anything, but say you're going half the speed of light for I don't know, a few hours when you come back it could be years and years later right uh you know things like that uh but then we started talking about time travel into the past and that that was the that was what i was really interested in because that that that's what most of the theological problems you know that's where most of that comes in uh now you know i i asked him okay so if we're able to travel into the past like what what ideas are there about that? You know, what about paradoxes, things like that? And there, there are two, there are two major views with time travel into the past. Um, one, the the easiest one, I guess, to understand, and actually the one that most Christians, if they accept time travel as a possibility, this is the one that they'll, you know, we 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 tend to latch on to because it's the easiest to explain theologically but uh is the one that states if you can travel back in time you 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 won't be able to change anything cuz whatever happened it happened and that's how it happened and that's it so uh like uh you know there's there's this uh, grandfather paradox that says if you go back in time and kill your grandfather then you would never be born to be able to go back in time to kill your grandfather in the first place. So how you know how would all that work? Right. Um, so with this, the the first the 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 first theory of time travel that says that you can't change anything. Um, basically, you wouldn't be able to kill your grandfather. Uh, the gun would jam, or or you know just something something would happen that you just wouldn't be able to do it. Right. Uh, the other, the other one that th this is the one that I find most interesting and one that I talk more about in the book uh, is called the many worlds interpretation, which basically states that you can change things, but if you do, then you're creating a split in the um, in the 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 timeline in the uh, basically the space time continuum. You know, you're creating a split and the change that you made is creating an alternate reality. Right. So that's so. Say if I go back in time and I kill my grandfather, well, I just created an alternate reality in which my grandfather was killed, but I can still exist because I still come from the original, uh, the, the the original uh, timeline. <laughs> right. So that's that's basically what that one states. Now a lot of um, a lot of Christians will have, and I used to also, a lot, a lot of Christians will have a problem with that because uh, what is usually attached with that is the idea that there are an infinite number of parallel universes because this theory states that any time a choice is made or any time anything happens, basically, it creates a, uh, a timeline where 
in in one timeline one thing happens and in another time another thing happens uh and that's for everything even something as small as a tree falling off of a leaf or something as big as like 9-11 or something like that uh so they you know physicists they'll, they'll be fond of saying that it would mean that there are infinite you know number i i don't really buy into the whole infinite thing because you know it's still finite <laughs> i mean there's still it might be a large number you know but they're right. you know of choices and things that have been made but it's not i i don't think it's infinite but anyway um but the problem is you know a lot a lot of christians will will take issue with that because they'll say well the that means that there's parallel versions of myself and wouldn't that mean that there are um there are other universes where i'm not saved Mm. And, and and things like that, and it's yes and no. Um, the, the the yes is that you know yes there would be parallel versions of yourself that's not saved if this theory is correct, but it's also no because it's not really you. You know we're just talking about biology here. You know we're just talking about physical matter. It has nothing to do with the soul. You know you wouldn't be sharing a soul right. with these other selves. But then the question is. If you go back and you cause a split in the timeline, where does that other soul come from? Or does that soul, like, how, do, how does that whole thing work? Well, you would still have your own soul, but when you're in that timeline, there would be a, there would still be a parallel you right. in, that, in that same. So you, you're actually invading another parallel timeline that already has a version of you. And like, let's say yeah. I... Let's say I go back in time, you know, if I go back in time, even an hour, well, I existed an hour ago, so there would be two of me, at least for that hour. Right. <laughs> uh, so that other version of me, if this theory is correct, right when I go back in time, I'm already changing things because I'm there. So it's already a, a, a parallel universe, if that makes sense. So yeah. there, that, that with the, if that theory is right, there's no real way to travel back in time in our own universe because the second that we arrive we're making a change by just being there so it would already split off right. so so there's there's you know there's issues with many worlds interpretation as well um so uh now if it is you know if it is our time like if there aren't multiple world or you know you know uh, parallel universes if it is just ours and if i were to go back in time then me and that version of myself it would still be me just in two places outside you know outside of the whole timeline so we would share a soul but that's just that's in the sense uh, that's in that theory that states that you can't change anything anyway so there's still no uh <laughs> theological problem there because uh you know the, the the theological problems that get brought up with that was like well you know, uh, can't you just go back in time and change that? Well, in that in that theory, you can't change anything. So you being there isn't creating any change to begin with. So <laughs> you're really not affecting anything. Um, My brain hurts. Yeah, mine too. Yeah, it happens. <laughs> <laughs> but I I do I do you know I don't okay I. I do believe that it's possible that many world, you know, interpretation might be accurate. I, I just, um, I don't know if I fully believe in the whole thing, but I, I will say that if it were ever to be proven to be true, and actually, I think this is something that I've heard on your show before, uh, when you were talking about the guy who claimed that he actually time traveled, and, right. but, uh, 
if 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 this actually turned out to be true, like if uh, if they were actually somehow able to prove that there are multiple universes, I don't. What the the question I bring up in the book is, is that something that should shake our faith? And the simple mm. answer is no, because it doesn't conflict with the Bible anywhere. Now, there there are arguments that can be made, like, you know, about the whole sharing a soul thing and free cho- you know, free will and all that. But when we look at what the what what the theory states, it, it's we're not sharing a soul with that person. It's a it's a separate being altogether. Right. Um, you know, and all, all of those and the, you know, that's not the only problem that people bring up. There are more and I I, I get them into, into them all in the book, but but when we really look at it, it doesn't pose any real threat to the Bible or Christianity. All it would mean is that God's creation is far more uh, great and expansive than we thought that it was to begin with. And how many times does that happen throughout history? You know, <laughs> when uh, yeah, I mean, ba- back when people thought that the world—that's all there was, you know—and that the, the the sky was just kind of a sheet draped over it. Now, now, now we see that there's actually a whole universe. Um, even before the whole universe, we thought it was just a solar system, and now we see there's a whole universe. And now, now this this one universe, there might be multiple universes that are on uh, these things called brains. Uh, <laughs> And you know, and getting into the all all that. So, how many times have we underestimated God's creation to begin with? So, it, it wouldn't surprise me if that actually did turn out to be true. That's not to say that I buy into the whole theory completely. I I'm I'm still kind of on the fence on it. You know, it's it's one of those it could be or it couldn't be things. But if it does turn out to be true, it poses absolutely no threat against the Bible or Christianity. So, right when things like that. If if things like that ever do get discovered, it doesn't mean we have to abandon our faith for science or anything like that. <laughs> Yay. Yeah. Well, that's good news. <laughs> All right, Gons, how you doing over there, buddy? Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I don't know yep. if that I don't know if that was a yes or no question. Does that mean <laughs> yeah. That means he's uh He's watching cat videos or something over there. That's what you're doing. Takes one to know one. Um, <laughs> I know you don't want to give away the last chapter. Oh. <laughs> and I won't force you to. But some of the things that you point out in the chapter before that, uh, which is, uh, we, we sort of touched on it, but this whole idea of um, God speaking creation into existence and we touched on this in the sound episode and uh what did you discover about the whole idea of you know the quantum field and everything else scripturally that sort of verifies this idea of god holding creation together and all that stuff oh yeah yeah i can talk about that um yeah i can talk about that without re without giving away the ending of the book and yeah i've I've said um you know to everybody who's interviewed me so far um uh I, I won't give away the end of the book because it you you, you got you just got to get the book. It's it, but believe me, it's worth it. When um, the last chapter of the book that actually it's funny how it turned out. The last chapter was actually the first thing that I came across <laughs> um, in in researching for for this book, uh, but it was really what gave me the drive to want to write the entire book 
so a, a, everything in this book leads up to one very major and huge point that will, without giving too much away, um, once you get there and read what the Bible has to say about this one thing, it, it, it's, it's like a reality, like redefining kind of moment. It's something that for me, it was like, wow, I didn't even know what reality was. Like it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's one, it's one of those things that it's, and, 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 you know, I'll, I'll say too, it's not me or it's not my thing. You know, it's not something that it's, it's God's because it's straight from his word. Um, so it's not like I'm trying to, you know, I can't take credit for it. So when I say things like it's just that mind blowing that I don't want to give it away on a, you know, on an interview, it's not that, you know, I'm not putting myself up on a pedestal there. It's, it's right, all, right. you know, all the glory goes to God. But uh, this string theory thing, uh, this is definitely so I'm glad that you asked about this because it's, it's one of my favorite things to talk about. And th this is um I, I don't think this is as big of a as a reality changing thing as what's in the last chapter of the book, but it's it's yeah, it's probably a close second or third. But uh, it's it's one of those things that when I understood what string theory actually is, and that it's not as complicated as it's presented in you know the media or in in uh, by most physicists, uh, it actually goes hand in hand with the Bible. <laughs> And uh, all right, so I'll I'll just get into it. Uh, Hebrews um, Hebrews eleven three says, um, "Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear." Uh, so first, what's being discussed? The, the word "worlds" was translated from the Greek word "aeon," meaning forever or an unbroken age, perpetuity of time, eternity. Uh, the world's universe, period of time, age. Basically, you know, that word can be used for any of those things. So this mm -hmm. this verse is, uh, it's talking about God's creation. So it's reasonable that, you know, all all of those definitions are acceptable for this for this verse. But now the, the, the term there, word of God, and I'm glad that we touched on that earlier because uh, that, that is used many times throughout the Old and New Testament in the Bible in reference to different things. And something... As, as we touched on before, and I get way more into in the book, there are times that uh, Word of God is in direct reference to Jesus uh, himself, such as in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, or, or you know, the pre-incarnate Jesus. Um, but here in Hebrews 11.3, a different Greek word is used than in... Um, than in John chapter 1. Uh, hmm. word. In, in Hebrews 11.3, the Greek word or word, <laughs> is uh, rima, meaning that which is or has been uttered by the living voice, uh, things spoken, word, uh, subject, subject matter of speech, things spoken of. Um, but in John 1, 1, word comes from the Greek uh, logos, uh, which I explain in quantum creation. It, it has deeper implications than just a spoken word. But here in Hebrews 11.3, it is actually referring to the literal voice of God. It's saying that everything in existence was created by the literal spoken word of God. Uh, so now that we have that first half of that verse, and there, there's a lot of verses we could get into uh, that, that basically say the, they have the same idea here. Um, but we just use this one because it's, you know, that's just the easiest. But, uh, <laughs> but since we have the first half of that verse uh, defined, we can look at the, the second half. Um, but 
actually, before we do that, we should actually go over the basic idea of string theory in order, you know, to see if these things, if, if, if this might actually apply here. Okay. Uh, string theory, um, string theory, like I said, it's not nearly as complicated as as it's portrayed. Uh, that that was actually one of the biggest things that, you know, I used to shy away from things like string theory and stuff because I thought I was, you know, I thought basically I thought I was too dumb to get it, <laughs> but that's not the case. And, um, you know, and it's not the case with any of this. I mean, any, any of the stuff that I wrote about in the book, you, you're not going to have any problem understanding the basics of it. Um, right. But anyway, so, uh, actually I can, uh, well, okay. <laughs> String theory conveys the idea that every particle of matter is actually uh, the result of even smaller strings that vibrate. And I can actually quote my book here. I have a little paragraph uh, to quote quantum creation. Uh, In essence, if you look deeply enough into any subatomic particle, you will find a string even more, string theory states that the strings within different particles are actually identical in nature, but vibrate at different rates in different patterns. The vibrations of the strings is what determines what type of particle it is to be. Mm -hmm. For example, an electron is less massive than a quark. So according to string theory, the electron's string vibrates less than the quark's string. All right, so in other words, the vibrations of the string itself is what produces the particle. So a particle is nothing more than the result of those vibrations. Now, as of today, it's not known uh, in the scientific community what exactly causes the string to vibrate uh, one of the leading theories, and, and this is one that every uh, theoretical physicist will, you know, that that buys into string theory will adhere to. Uh, you know, they'll state that whatever it is, it must come from a higher dimension. So this actually brings us to the last half of Hebrews eleven three. Um, so it says, um, it says in the King James, things which are seen were not made of things which do appear, uh, but, you know, maybe a better uh, or at least uh, easier to understand uh, version. We, we could look at the ESV, uh, he Hebrews 11.3 in the ESV states, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So, uh, the text reads, what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So that's right. to say everything in physical existence or what can be seen was made by something invisible or something outside of what we can perceive with our three spatial dimensional perspective. Mm -hmm. So if, if string theory is an accurate definition of reality, and I, I have no problem with it, I, I actually believe it probably is, um, this can help explain what exactly is causing those strings to vibrate. Uh, now, w when we look at this, we got to keep in mind that even time itself is a creation of God, and we, you know, we touched on that earlier. Uh, that's important to remember because it shows that God Himself is outside of time. Now, of course, He can inject Himself into time as He sees fit, but that doesn't mean He's bound by time like you and I are. God, 
uh, by his very own nature is outside of time itself. Now, the reason that that's important to realize goes back to the cause of the string's vibrations. Um, Hebrews 11.3 tells us that everything was created by the spoken word of God. Uh, in essence, God spoke everything into existence. Now, from our perspective, being bound by time and being within this timeline, uh, this initial creative act would have occurred in the past. That's how we would look at it. You know, we'd say thousands of years ago or millions, whatever side of the fence you're, you're on that. However long ago, it was, it was a past event. Uh, and that's, that's why the past tense language is used in that verse. However, God himself is outside of time, meaning there's no real past, present, or future from his perspective, right. uh, which also helps bring into clear focus uh, Isaiah 46.10 that says uh, he can call out the end from the beginning and beginning from the end. Uh, for God, everything just is. Everything's known and seen just as clearly as everything else, regardless of where it falls on the timeline of physical existence. Uh, so as I, as I have said in other, um, other uh, interviews and things like that, uh, the, the ultimate conclusion and the truly amazing thing uh, that can be considered by putting all of this together is that we actually exist within the spoken word of God. Uh, from our perspective, that initial creative word from God is still forever emanating from him. Right. It's, it, it's his eternal voice that's causing strings to vibrate, still, uh, you know, thereby resulting in the production of the physical particles that make up all of matter and energy. We're, we're not only created by, you know, created by God. Our, our existence is maintained by God through his voice. Um, you know, so as you're listening to this, mm. you can look at you, you can look at your hand, and your your hand is existing right now because the voice of God from outside of time. When, you know, at the instant he decided to speak everything into existence, including time. So from outside of time, his voice is causing, currently, causing strings to vibrate and causing the particles to, that you know, that are being produced from those vibrations that make up your hand. Yeah. Uh, so you yourself and everything in physical existence... Uh, we're existing only because the voice of God is currently making it possible. It's not just a past event. It's an event that, that is happening from outside of time. Um, so you, you're a direct result of the timeless, ongoing, and never-ending spoken word of God himself. I, that, that just it blows my mind every time I try to wrap my head around that. Boom. <laughs> that is so cool. I like that a lot. Yeah. That is rad. Well, Josh, we're coming up on, you know, the ending part of the show here. This has just been really great. I'm really pumped. I'm pumped I have this book. And since I'm so special, I didn't even have to pay for it. So, <laughs> suckas. No, but I am very excited. And uh, a very large donation check is on your way. Um, so, you can look out for that. It's... Uh, it. It's written in my handwriting, but it's actually one of Basil's or one of Gonza's checks. So, yeah, Get that. yeah, rolling in the cash over here. <laughs> yeah. Oh, aren't we all? <laughs> <laughs> well, Josh, thank you so much. Tell us where we can find your stuff, where we can get a hold of you, what coffee shops you frequent, <laughs> and all your info. 
Absolutely. Well, my favorite coffee shop is the kitchen where my wife makes coffee. That's my actual kitchen. That was a lame classic. <laughs> that was just that was a swing and a miss. That, that's, that's my one for the day. <laughs> there you go. Uh, well, my <laughs> my website is uh, ministry.com. Um, if you want to get the book, that's the best place to get it. You can't miss it. Uh, it's right right there on the homepage. Uh, I, as you mentioned, I also host a show called The Sharpening. Information can be found on that on my uh, website, ministry.com. Um, uh, the show itself, the, the audio, is at a blog talk radio backslash the sharpening. But we've all, uh, I, I've started doing more video interviews lately that have been going really well, hmm. and people seem to enjoy them more. And I, you know, I, I like it because I can put the video up, people can kind of, you know, get to see authors in their own home in their own environment but i can also put the audio on blog talk so it, it kind of works for uh for for everybody but um i have all of those on my uh youtube channel which is uh youtube.com backslash josh peck disclosure uh, i also started doing these things called mini study speed studies which is just uh these real quick videos you know 10 15 minutes or so on on various topics of current events or you know just whatever's whatever is going on at the time <laughs> so i have a, i just started doing those i have six or seven of those up now those are also on my youtube channel um best way to get a hold of me i i i do stay open to anybody who wants to take the time to talk to me <laughs> um i uh since uh since i first started in, in all of this that that was one of my main goals was you know no matter no matter make what friends y yes yeah <laughs> i want to be popular and you know i just want friends no <laughs> You're in the wrong business buddy <laughs> oh oh yeah don't i know it <laughs> but uh no you know whatever whatever god does with with my ministry i want to stay open to those who uh have questions or who you know, have concerns or want to talk or, you know, because when, when I first started out in this stuff, I, it, it was it was really difficult for me to get a hold of people because, you know, a lot of people are busy. Um, I'm in kind of a special circumstance where since I don't really have a job, this is all I do. Right. <laughs> uh, I have I do have the time to stay open to the public. So uh, the best way to get a hold of me, I'm really active on Facebook, probably more so than I should be. But uh, don't I know. Uh, yeah, I'm on, I'm on Facebook. It's just Josh Peck. I'm, I'm the guy with the dark goat beard, guy, you know, looking guy. So I'm, you know, I, I, I'm easy to find on there. I, I have links on my website, too, to my uh, my Facebook page. And then my email, um, you can get a hold of me on there, too. I, ch I check it all the time. So uh, it's uh, joshpeckdisclosure at gmail.com. Uh, you can get a hold of me on there. So uh, awesome. I, think, yeah, I think that's all my info. <laughs> <laughs> All right, buddy. Well, hey, it was great having you on the show. We'll have you on next time. And, uh, you know, maybe I'll meet you in the past somewhere. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening to Canary Cry Radio, everybody. Make sure to listen in next time. But until then, think outside the cage.